Good morning, everyone. Let me invite you to uh, come on in and take a seat. I hope you're uh, shaking off your food coma, moving out of the, uh, the, the doldrums of three or four days of turkey or whatever else you've been eating. Um, I know there's been a lot of sickness going around. Uh, I hope you're dealing with that okay. I, I still have the uh, lingering effects of something. Um, so my voice sounds a little off. That's why. I, I'm doing okay. Um, but it's still affecting me a little bit. Well, as we begin our study this morning, we come in Machen's book to the second to the last chapter. The big word is the penultimate chapter. It is on the doctrine of salvation. And then we'll close with the church. So we're almost done uh, with our study of Machen. And I hope that you're following along with us uh, at this point. You know, if you haven't read it, you probably won't. But maybe you got the book and maybe you'll pick it up and go back and read it if you haven't. This is so helpful. Well, let me open us up in prayer and then we'll dive into our study. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning and we're thankful, thankful that you are our God and you have taken us to be your people, the very sheep of your pasture. We thank you that you've given us a good shepherd, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has done a remarkable work to bring us into a state of salvation through his death and resurrection. And Lord, we pray as we reflect on the salvation that Christ has worked through his, uh, his coming to die for us and to bear our curse, our sin and our shame, and to defeat our enemies. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to see the hope that this gives the people of God and cheer us. Lord, help us to be fortified in our faith as we rest solely on Christ and Christ alone, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned, we're looking at the the chapter on salvation. And as Machen begins his chapter, he notes something that's significant that as we move through the book and that, that deals with presuppositions. He says, It has been observed thus far that liberalism differs from Christianity with regard to the presuppositions of the gospel. Now, if you remember, a presupposition is something you suppose beforehand. You're not arguing the point. You're simply assuming or presuming that this is true. It's foundational. And there have been five of these thus far. That's why there's been five chapters uh, leading into chapter 6 on salvation. These are the presuppositions he's dealt with. From, liberal, from liberalism. Liberalism believes that there's just an essence of Christianity, a, a loose collection of ethics that are detached from history. And what they're constantly trying to do is give away everything to the liberals, to the, the scientists, give them everything, we'll just hold on to the ethics. And Machen has showed us, and that's a house of cards. Christianity doesn't exist if that's what you do because it's rooted in history that'll keep coming back up. The doctrine of God. Liberalism has promoted this notion of the fatherhood of God. What does that mean? Well, God is the father of all people. There's a sense in which biblically that's true. There are two places in the Bible that speak of God being the father of all, most strikingly in Paul's sermon in Acts 17 where he quotes uh, a Grecian poet that we are God's offspring. That's true, we're all image bearers. God is our maker. But almost always, 99.7% of the time, 
the focus of the word Father in the Bible with respect to God is on the redemptive element that we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, and now God is our Father in a salvific sense. Well, liberalism has gutted the redemptive element from the fatherhood of God. There's a total elimination of transcendence that God is high above us. He's become just near to us only. And there's a complete downplay of God's holiness and God's judgment. So that's just emptied. We're not talking about the judgment of God anymore. We're just trying to get you to live a certain way. Liberalism has looked at man in a radically different way than the Bible does. Liberalism has argued that man is basically good. Man is basically good. And there's no great gulf separating God and man. They eliminate the doctrine of the creator-creature distinction, which is really fundamental to uh, a reformed world and life view. That God is higher than we are in every way conceivable, and we can't know Him at all unless He were to stoop to reveal Himself and to make Himself known, which He has done by covenants. But it assumes something about man that we can, as it were, lift ourselves up to God because we're really not that bad. That's the idea. Liberalism has presupposed that the Bible is a flawed book, merely recording men's experience. Men wrote their experience of God, but it can't be relied upon Uh, The Bible is not seen to be the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of the Lord. Uh, Rather, it's just a book with, you know, people's past experience and you can't trust it in any way. No historical facts, or if it, you know, kinds of like a blind squirrel stumbles onto a historical fact, it it really doesn't matter in terms of redemptive significance because they're not interested in grounding the gospel in history at all. There's no divine authority, or at least there's only a partial authority. Um, That is, there's a help for ethics that liberalism is going to embrace. But there's no truly authoritative, thus says the Lord. That's, That's a problem. And then, of course, Christ, which we looked at last time. The presupposition of liberalism is that Christ is a mere man. He's a good teacher uh, who made no true divine claims. You probably encountered this. You'll argue with someone who's not a Christian, and if they know a little bit, just enough to be dangerous, they'll say something like, Jesus never said He was the Son of God. Uh, And they'll make these assertions about, well, you know, when Jesus is asked, "Are, are you the Messiah? He'll say things like, well, you say so. Which is an affirmation, by the way. Uh, but they, they discount the logic of Jesus's miracles, because they don't believe in miracles. They discount the notion of divine titles. There's more title than just the Son of God. There's the great I Am statements that Jesus made, which are claiming to be divine. There's the works that Jesus does. No one can forgive sins but God alone. Even the Pharisees know that, right? So He must be God. They just get rid of all this stuff. No, Jesus is just uh, an example to us. He, He is the highest form of having a consciousness of God. I still have no idea what that actually means. But that's the kind of claim that they would make. And there's a focus on what Jesus said and not on what Jesus did. Now, I think uh, Pastor John last week referred to C.S. Lewis's trilemma, um, which is made famous uh, for us in 
you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, but in other places in his logic that Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or a lord. And you see here, if you focus on what Jesus said, and not on what he did or who he was, um, Lewis, and I'm just going off my memory, basically says, if you say the kind of things that Jesus said, then you are either not just a liar, you're like the devil from hell because you're deceiving people about their salvation, or you are a nutcase on the level of a poached egg, right? You're crazy, not just crazy. You're crazy, right? But liberalism is trying to discount all that. And Machen's arguing throughout the book, none of this makes any sense. Well, let's deal specifically with the doctrine of salvation. And we'll see how far we can get this morning. All right. Liberalism, Majin claims, finds salvation so far as it is willing to speak at all of salvation. Liberalism finds salvation in man. You save yourself. You rise to the highest level of who you are. You you become an exalted human being by doing great things, by perfecting yourself. Christianity, biblically, finds it, salvation, in an act of God. You cannot save yourself. If we could save ourselves, why did Jesus even come? That would be Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 2. If righteousness could be attained from the law, what use was it for Christ to come? That totally nullifies the cross of Christ. It's unnecessary. And then, Machen says, according to Christian belief, Jesus is our Savior. And note this, not by virtue of what He said, not even by virtue of what He was, but by what He did. You see, Machen keeps coming back to the, the crux of the matter the historical work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how he said earlier in the book, quoting 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died, that's history. Right? Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that's history. But Jesus died according to the Scriptures for our sins, that's doctrine. But you don't have the notion of Christ dying for our sins if you don't have the idea that He died. Likewise, His resurrection he was really raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's a historical fact. But He appeared as risen from the dead. And these are crucial things that we have to focus on. So when you hear the apostles preach, or you read it throughout Scripture, you see this great focus on what He did. Now that doesn't mean it's disconnected from who He was. Because if Jesus isn't the God-man, then what He did doesn't matter. It's because of who He is that what He does matters. And if He is the Son of God, and He did die on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead, then it very much matters what He says. But if you just try to focus on what Jesus said, and you disconnect it from what Jesus did, then you've got nothing. That's what Machen's trying to show here. <clears throat> so what kind of a Savior is Jesus? Machen compares and contrasts a little bit the liberal view that Jesus is a Savior who brings us inspiration. And what he means by that is liberalism is proclaiming that Christ came to inspire us to be the best version of ourselves. If you can call that salvation, that's the notion that liberalism embraces. Just look at Jesus, this beautiful example of a God consciousness 
of all that you could be as a man, of the, the wisdom that you could have, and be like Him. So Jesus inspires you to be better. <clears throat> Again, I've already pointed this out. Earlier studies, the, the question that's famous, what would Jesus do? And I told you it really should be, what has Jesus done? That, that question, it's not a bad question if it's taken in the right context. But if you reduce Christianity to what would Jesus do, then you're just looking at inspiration. What would Jesus do in this situation? Well, let me be inspired to do what Jesus would do. That's great if you're already a Christian. It's terrible if you're not. Because it doesn't deal with the issue at hand, your separation from God. Christianity focuses on the kind of Savior Jesus really is. He is a Savior who brings imputation. That is, Christ's, uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to our account as we trust in Him. So my righteousness, which even on its best day, is still corrupt. Christ's righteousness is flawless. And if I have the robes of Christ's righteousness, then I can stand before the Father and be accepted. And then my sin is imputed to Him. So He suffers the judgment that I deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become in Him the righteousness of God. Jesus gets my sin. I get His righteousness. The great exchange. Double imputation. This is the kind of Savior that Jesus is. He doesn't just inspire us. He does that after He's imputed His righteousness to us. After our sin has been imputed to Him and we're cleansed. Then He motivates me to live for Him. And I can look at Him as an example. But His example, gutted from His redemptive work, will not bring you salvation. You're still left with all the same problems. How do I deal with alienation from God? And again, here's where liberalism is going to fail us in their doctrine or theory of the atonement. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Now, if you can get a liberal to actually believe that there is a historical cross and to focus on it, why did Jesus go to the cross? When we did our vast survey of history before we actually got into the matron study, we mentioned a couple of ancient theories of the atonement. And I really do mean that they're old. The moral influence theory <clears throat> uh, goes back at least to the 12th century. And the idea is that when Christ died on the cross, He was moving us to be inspired to live for God. That's all the cross was. It was just moving you to be inspired to live for God. So the cross is just a great moral example. See how you should sacrifice yourself in the service of God like Jesus did. But that doesn't actually explain what happens on the cross. And really, it's a bad moral influencer. If you think about it, live for God, you could die on a cross. How is that influencing me to do anything? Uh, it really requires me to already believe certain things about who Jesus is to want to take up my cross daily and follow after Christ. It's because of His divine uh, work, that is, He saves us from our sin, that then moves us forward to live in a way that honors Him. But if you just have this view that Christ is morally influencing us by dying on the cross, see how great a love you ought to have that you would lay down your life 
and it's gutted from salvation, then it still doesn't fix my problem. How can I, a sinner, be right with God? The other one that we've looked at before, the governmental theory of the atonement, the governmental theory of the atonement, basically argues that when Jesus dies on the cross, He's not strictly paying for our sin. All of our sin wasn't laid on Jesus and He paid for it and satisfied the justice of God. Rather, this theory argues that when Jesus died on the cross, God was just showing us all how much He hates sin. That's it. God was instituting a principle of His moral government. I can't just forgive. I have to have some sign that I don't like sin. But it actually doesn't pay for the problem of sin. This, this view, while it at least acknowledges that sin deserves some kind of judgment, it doesn't focus on your sin deserves particular judgment. And if Christ didn't pay for your sin, well then what, what happens to you? In this view, well, you know, we just let it slide. God will forgive because He's already made a declaration that He hates sin. But it's not focusing on your individual problem before the Lord. So both of these views are insufficient, to say the least. <clears throat> a right view, our view, and I don't say it that way to make it sound like you know we're, we're just always right. What Machen is trying to argue is what the Bible teaches is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Now this little phrase that I hope you know, and if you don't know, you need to work it into your vocabulary. Penal. Our sin before the law of God has requires penal sanctions. There's a penalty. What is the penalty? The Bible's pretty clear. The wages of sin is death. That seems pretty straightforward, right? What do we hear from the Lord in the garden? If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will what? Surely die. Now, death set in immediately. The world is changed because of the sin of Adam. And then, as you keep reading Genesis, Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. There's this pattern of death. That's the penalty for sin. But the penalty for sin isn't just a physical death, because we're not just physical beings. It's a spiritual death. There's soul separation from God. That's the penalty that you deserve the wrath and curse of God. Well, Christ came to pay that penalty. And He came to pay it, not just paying our penal sanction, but He came to pay it as a substitute. When Christ died on the cross, He paid not for sins that He committed because He didn't have any sin, but He paid for our sins. Christ took the penal sanctions of the law against us, His people, His sheep, and He paid for them. He substituted Himself. His perfect record for our rotten record. And Jesus gets our rotten record, satisfies the justice of God, and now our rotten record is wiped away. Colossians 2, we, we now have, as it were, a clean slate. We're cleansed. But not just that. We just Our bank balance hasn't gone up to zero. We have righteousness which is a God-righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, which means we go all the way as high as we could possibly go. Uh, we can be reconciled to God on this basis. 
So what did Jesus' death do? He paid our penal sanction as a substitute and atoned for us. Now, what these, do, these problems or these theories don't deal with is the problem of guilt. You remember this from Toy Story? Those of you who've watched Toy Story. The dinosaur famous, great, I have guilt. Um, the liberals, as they preach, don't want anybody to feel guilty. I'm okay, you're okay. Let me tell you what to do. Let me tell you how to live. But there's no focus on the fact that God is an offended deity at your sin and you are guilty before Him. And if you don't repent, you are going to receive the wrath and curse of God. That's offensive. We're going to get to that in a minute. And yes, it is offensive. But it's not me telling you. This is what God says. And this is the crux of the problem with liberalism. Liberalism has embraced presuppositions gutted from scriptural truth. They don't believe in a God who's bringing judgment on man. They're not really concerned for the individual soul. They just want society to be better. So let's give them the ethics of Jesus and hope it all works out in the end. But it doesn't satisfy your problem. You do have guilt. And if you don't deal with your problem of guilt by repenting and believing in Christ, you will go to your eternal death. That is the bad news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Christ has come to cleanse you of your guilt if you trust in Him. So liberalism is just detaching everything from Scripture and from the problem that man has before God. So what's the difference, if we boil it down, in the apostolic gospel and the liberal gospel? Machen quotes a couple of texts, thinks about it, and he says, if you look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul in particular, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. <clears throat> what's the focus of Paul? The crucifixion of Jesus, and I have to explain why He was crucified. Again, bearing our sin to satisfy the justice of God and reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. Galatians 6.4 Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in the cross sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? To Jews it's scandalous. To Greeks it's foolishness. But this is our hope. What Christ accomplished at the cross. Liberalism, on the other hand, liberal preachers speak of atonement in the cross as seldom as they can. There is no focus on the cross. They don't like all that, all the hymns about blood. We're not going to sing those. <clears throat> don't want to. There was a controversy not that long ago about the hymn in Christ alone and the mention of wrath and certain denominations wanting to change that word because we don't like that word, that God is a God of wrath. And you're wondering, probably if you're in this room, you're wondering, have you read the Bible? Are you serious? Come on. But friends, they're, they're just not connected to what Scripture is actually saying. This is a do-it-by-yourself religion. This is a invent things as you go along, as it feels good to you. Totally disconnecting from God's revelation. All right, we're going to try to start dealing with objections that uh, Machen mentions throughout this chapter that the liberal will bring up. Objection number one here. Preaching the cross is too dependent on history. 
Christians should focus on what Christ does now for every Christian and not what He did so long ago in Palestine. What has Jesus done for me lately? That's the idea. Let's, let's focus on the now. We're, we're people living in the now. We don't need to go back. History is bunk. Let's not look back at history. Well, Machen responds, if the saving work of Christ were confined to what He does now for every Christian, there would be no such thing as the Christian gospel. Again, you've just taken the history and ripped it away. Well, what do you have left? You got nothing. You got mysticism. I feel that Jesus does this certain thing for me today. How do I know if that's true? Well, I feel it. But how do I know that's true? Well, I feel it. This is the weird circle we're in as we try to talk to people today. Um, Truth is based on what you feel, but that's no foundation for rooting anything in truth. That doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense to me because I feel it. You're like, ah, um, I don't know how to have a conversation with you. Uh, Let's talk about what actually happened. Historic Christianity. Again, Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. According to the Scriptures, Christ appeared. These are historical gospel facts, and you see them presented when the apostles preach. This is Christianity. And this other thing that you're talking about isn't little advancement of that. Look, it's better to have a salvation which is with us here and now, which depends only upon what we can see or feel. A salvation that depends only upon what we can see or feel. Who's saving the person in that scenario? We're saving ourselves. We save ourselves by what we see or feel. Uh, That doesn't work. (laughs) That's why Jesus came. So again, Machen, he points out, look, the word gospel means good news. It's connected to history. It's a tidings, glad tidings about something that actually happened. A gospel independent of history is a contradiction in terms. But if the historical account actually happened, it does have present effects. Machen's not saying it doesn't matter what you see or feel. No, he's saying something happened in history that affects what we see and feel. But we can't just focus on what we see or feel and cut off the gospel. You tracking with him? All right, next objection. The Christian doctrine of salvation through the death of Christ is too narrow. You've probably heard this before. What we need is a salvation which will save all men everywhere, whether they have heard of Jesus or not, and whatever may be the type of life to which they have been reared. Everybody can be saved. Um, So what we need is a doctrine of God, in their view, a doctrine of God which just saves everybody. Now, what are some obvious problems with this? Can can you think of one? Get a little... Okay. Jesus Himself... Let's remember who's talking here. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So He's focused on not... There's many paths to God. There's only one, and that's what Jesus said. No one can come to the Father except, but except through me, right? You think of another one, Randy? Okay, that's great. Who's in charge here? I am. This has been the grand shift that has happened epistemologically, the doctrine of knowledge. How do we know stuff? It used to be because God is and tells me things. Then it 
shifted to, I think, therefore I am. Knowledge starts with me. And then that shifted further to where we are now. We could say, I feel, therefore I am. The movement has been man is in charge. There's an adoption of a Greek philosophical principle. Man is the measure of all things. It's all about me. No sense of a transcendent God that I've offended with my sin. So yeah, this is a problem. If, if this were true, what we need is a salvation that will save all men everywhere, whether they have heard of Jesus or not. Wouldn't the most effective evangelistic strategy in the world be don't tell anyone about Jesus? Just stop talking about Jesus. Then eventually, the next generation, nobody will have heard of Jesus, and where are they all then going? They're all going to heaven. That's the assumption. So let me use what's called the reductio ad absurdum, the argument of absurdity. Okay, let's just shut down all the churches, burn all the Bibles, nobody will have heard of Jesus, and then we can all go to heaven. That's the best way. That's absurd, right? I hope you see that that's absurd. But that's the logic of this thought. Well, Machen responds again, Christianity demanded an absolute exclusive devotion. All other saviors, it insisted, must be deserted for the one Lord. There's only one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus Christ and it's Christ alone. So we proclaim the exclusivity of the gospel. And when people get offended by it, you tell them, this is what Jesus says. Not me. I didn't make this up. I'm not dictating the rules. I'm just telling you what Christ himself said. It's an offensive message. Very offensive. And again, liberalism is not wanting to offend anybody. So let's make everybody happy. Let's give them some ethics. Let's not cut to the core of the problem of their sin and bring conviction of sin. But the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Right? This is an amazing message. I have offended God. The offended one is God. And the message is coming to tell me I need to do something that I would be right with God, but problem, I can't do anything. But God has done something. He sent His Son. He brought Him into the world to save His people from their sins. And Machen points out there's a great responsibility here in preachers preaching this message. Preachers are the the instrument that God has chosen to proclaim the offense of the cross, to proclaim that God is offended at our sin, but there's a path of reconciliation. And it might not make you popular with people if you take your responsibility seriously. I mean, we're reading Acts. We're going to see this morning. What happens when you keep telling a sinful world that they're sinners? What, What might they do to you? They might kill you. Yeah. Well, I don't really want to be killed, so I'll just change the message. Make it easier. Objection. How can one person suffer for the sins of another? This is absurd. This is what the liberal will say. Nobody can suffer for the sins of another person. Well, Machen argues, yeah, it's true that no mere man can pay for another man's sin, but it doesn't follow that Jesus couldn't do it because Jesus isn't a mere man. He's the eternal Son of God. 
And the Christian doctrine of the atonement is rooted in the deity of Christ. If Christ isn't God, then there is no salvation. There's a famous book. It's from the Middle Ages. Not everything in the Middle Ages is bad. Um, but a famous book by Anselm called Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man. And he explains the necessity of Jesus being both God and man, satisfying the justice of God. And he's arguing against, in the Middle Ages, the moral influence theory of the atonement. He's saying, no, 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 that's wrong. Christ came to satisfy God's justice in our place. That's what he's doing. Uh, we need the deity of Christ, and he can pay for our sins. So, as Machen's working through this, he quotes a hymn that you'll all know, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. That's history. Real cross, real death. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. That's experience. The doctrine led to the experience. When I look at what Jesus did for me on the cross, it lays me low in my pride. I can't reach up to God. I need Christ. Look at my sin. Look at what my sin did. The horror of my sin, that Christ would suffer the way that he suffered to bring redemption to me. And then a long quote. The modern liberal church is fond of appealing to experience. But where shall true Christian experience be found if not in the blessed peace which comes from Calvary? The peace comes only when a man recognizes that all his striving to be right with God, all his feverish endeavor to keep the law before he can be saved is unnecessary, and that the Lord Jesus has wiped out the handwriting that was against him by dying instead of him on the cross. Isn't this the glorious thing about the cross? The thing for which we should be thankful, not just Thanksgiving season? The handwriting against me that I was worthy death and had broken the law of God and would justly be condemned. Jesus has borne that judgment in my place. <clears throat> and if I trust in him, I'm free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. What a cheering word that should be to the soul. That has experiential implications, doesn't it? That gives you peace in your soul. I'm at peace with God because of what Christ has done. So again, Machen is saying, don't just try to build your doctrine, your stuff, your whole system on experience. It's doctrine then leading to experience. Because if you get rid of all this stuff that Jesus did, you have no basis for peace. You've just ripped it all away. What a degraded view of God, the liberal will say. Uh, when God is represented as being alienated from man and is waiting coldly until a price be paid for, before he grants salvation. God is more willing to forgive sin. God's just willing to forgive. That's his job, right? God's just forgiving. What, what problem does this raise? Well, what about his justice? Does he ignore his justice because he's willing to forgive? This is the problem the liberal can't solve. Machen says, and this is a striking statement, if sin is so trifling a matter as the liberal church supposes, then indeed the curse of God's law can be taken lightly, and God can easily let bygones be bygones. This business of letting bygones be bygones has a pleasant sound, but in reality 
it is the most heartless thing in the world. Does it really work? Does mere repentance fix the problem? Machen in the book talks about how men can be reconciled to one another and he, he discusses the problem of sin against each other. And he acknowledges that when someone tells you I'm sorry, that doesn't always fix the problem. And let's look at the most heinous cases of violence. Someone was brutally murdered and the murderer just says, I'm sorry. And all is well, right? Fixes everything, right? You know it doesn't. There's a famous case, I think it's in 1989 in Britain, where a a British soldier, I'm not sure all the particulars that were going on with him, but he murdered his wife and child. And then he went through the legal system. The process began. He was incarcerated for a season awaiting trial. When he gets to trial, he acknowledges he's guilty and he's weeping um, in light of what he had done. And the judge pronounced the sentence saying, you've suffered enough, you can go free. The, uh, the equivalent of about two years of incarceration for the, the murder of his wife and child. Is that justice? No. Can you imagine being a part of that family and seeing a man dealt with like that? We're seeing that kind of justice happening more and more and more in our culture. No, that doesn't fix the problem here. Even with man committing sin against man, right? we, we just can't say to one another, well, let's just let bygones be bygones. I forgive you even if you murdered my whole family. We'll, we'll just move on with life. No, there's something screaming in your soul for justice for vindication. So if it can't fix the problem even with man, do you think it can fix it with God? What a degraded view of God it is to speak of His ongoing anger. This deprecates the love of God. You see what's being done here. Let's let's juxtapose the love of God and the wrath of God. And what happens in this idea is the love of God becomes superior and that means God has no wrath. Right, we got to get rid of the wrath of God because God can't be loving and be wrathful at the same time. Again, I ask you, have you read the Bible? That's not the view of God that we have in the Bible. It's not what Jesus himself teaches. And Machen points this out. Jesus himself speaks of both the wrath of God and the love of God. So trying to reject the wrath of God is to reject what Jesus says. Look at what Machen just did. You're building your whole system, liberals, on what Jesus said. Well, did you know that Jesus said God is a God of wrath? He's got them by the throat. Where are you going to go now? What are you going to do now? He's used logic to be penetrating in His attack and shows, shows them you have just gutted your entire system. Because Jesus says things that you're just ignoring. The wrath of God. Jesus says that there's a place where the worm dieth not. Remember this passage? If your right eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. Throw it away from you. Better to go on in this life with one eye than in the future state 
go to hell with both of your eyes. That's Jesus talking. In fact, if you were to study the words of Christ, I think you might quickly discover Jesus talks a lot about things that we don't like to talk about. Money. Wrath. Immorality. Sabbath breaking. These are like taboo subjects. But Jesus is just going after it. And He's pressing our soul's need to be right with God, the need to deal with the problem of sin. He is. Right. Yeah, He's showing the greatness of God's law and His righteousness and that you could never meet the standard. But then, look at the beautiful part. Look at the way, I've got you by the throat, right? But then what, do you, what does He do? Further, the love of God is seen in that He, the Father, gave His Son to be the sacrifice to satisfy His wrath. Do you want to see the love of God? The Father in love gave His own Son to be the substitute to satisfy His wrath. The offended God did what was necessary to take the offense away. That's amazing. And it's holding together that God is both loving and wrathful. Such love... Machen says, is very different from the complacency found in the God, the God of modern liberal preaching. So I'm almost out of time, so let me, let me read a couple of quotes here to close. He's responding to the liberal again. And pardon me as I just read this. <clears throat> if you view God as simply a loving Father, does that view work? How can anyone be unhappy when the ruler of the universe is declared to be the loving father of all men who will never permanently inflict pain upon his children? Where is the sting of remorse if all sin will necessarily be forgiven? And yet, when you look at the experience of people, men are strangely ungrateful. God is incredibly loving. You don't have to do anything about your sin. And you're still a bunch of miserable people. Why are you so miserable? Machen says, look, as we think about this issue, if God will necessarily forgive no matter what we do, why trouble ourselves about Him at all? Why do I even need to be concerned what God thinks if He's just going to forgive me anyway? Such a God may deliver us from the fear of hell, but His heaven, if He has any, is full of sin. You see what He's doing there? Um, you haven't dealt with the problem of this broken world. So your concept of what heaven can be is not a heaven I want to be a part of because all the brokenness is still there. Religion cannot be made joyful simply by looking on the bright side of God for a one-sided God is not a real God and it is not the real God who can satisfy the longing of the soul. So I'm going to close with this. Where, where's the joy in the liberal conception of salvation. God is left in impenetrable mystery. You really can't know Him. That's what liberalism is offering you. Man is confined to the prison of this world, beautifying the prison with tinsel. Just let's everybody try to be better. Um, let's, let's lift ourselves up but we're not really dealing with the problems. And then man is dissatisfied with the relative goodness, which is no goodness at all, and dissatisfied with the companionship of his sinful fellows. 
if you don't deal with the problem of sin, I can't be reconciled to God, but I also can't be reconciled to you. Because we have no sense of how this problem can ever be overcome. So again, we're, we're left in a world where nothing really works. Now we can put on a happy face and tell each other to, to be better. We can smile a lot and write books about how every day is a Friday. <clears throat> I don't know why he didn't choose every day as a Sunday for the title of that book. That's really telling to me. Um, yeah, every day is a Friday. Um, that's, that's a house of cards, brethren. This is a false, that's a false gospel. But Christ came to satisfy the penal sanctions that we owe to God as a substitute for us. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And because He did that, as the Father gave Him for us, that thrills my soul that I can have peace with God, joy in the Holy Spirit, and the, the hope of this new life, an inheritance that I will embrace where there will be no more pain, sorrow, suffering, death, or curse. That's a heaven that I want to go to. Well, May Machen's touch on these things, and there's a lot more in the book that I didn't get to, but May's touch on these things cause us to see <clears throat> that we have a glorious gospel and rejoice in it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you amazed that though we, by our sin, have offended you, have transgressed your holy and perfect law, that you were willing to send your own Son into the world to bear our sin and shame. Lord, we pray that we would not come to worship this morning boasting in what our hands have done, but we would come boasting in what you have done, what your Son has accomplished on the cross. Make us to glory in the cross. And as the word of the cross is proclaimed, Lord, would you use it to sanctify us and give us the hope of glory that we would be stirred up to see a world beyond this world, that better country with no more sorrowing inside. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.